This week's episode of the Vellanews Podcast brought to you by Roll Massif, organizers of eight of Colorado's most iconic road gravel and mountain bike events. Roll Massif has the events to take riders through the alpine terrain around Copper Mountain, one that takes them to the desert landscape of the Colorado National Monument. Regardless of the event, you're always guaranteed a great post-ride festival. Guys, you've heard me talk about Roll Massif on the podcast before. Again, the really cool thing about Roll Massif, in addition to the festivals and the bike rides, it's free for kids under the age of 18. Look, we're all trying to do our part to grow our sport and get young people involved in cycling. And Roll Massif presents an awesome opportunity because a lot of the events have different distances. So you don't have to like club your teenage kid over the head with a hundred mile ride. They can do the shorter one. You can do the longer one. You can meet up for the party afterwards. Right now, Roll Massif has a great deal for listeners of the podcast. It's ending soon. ends June 1st, so jump on this soon. Uh, if you go to RollMassif.com, R-O-L-L-M-A-S-S-I-F.com, use the code VELONEWS15 at checkout. You're going to get 15% off your registration for any of the events. That's right, 15% off a Roll Massif event. That's a good deal. Again, head over to RollMassif.com. Velo News 15 at checkout. This deal is coming up pretty soon, June 1st, so please jump on it now. Thanks to Roll Massive for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Let's get on with the show. Uh, welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you again from the home office. It is a sunny Tuesday. I don't know. We have these holiday weekends. I forget what day it is. We had Memorial Day this week. I hope you all had a great long weekend, rode your bicycles, engaged in self-social distancing on your rides, and took in the sunshine. I did a lot of home projects again, like lawn stuff, hung out with a kiddo, but I had a breakthrough moment with my young daughter. I took her on her first bike ride around the neighborhood, and she loved it. Oh my gosh. Just spreading cycling to the next generation um, felt, felt really good. Um, Hey, we have a great episode of the podcast coming up. Um, In the first segment, I have an interview with Marina Zenovich. She is the producer and the director of the new Lance Armstrong documentary, Lance, capital Lance. The first half of that aired a few nights ago on ESPN. It's a 30 for 30 documentary. Second half airs this coming week. Um, I sat down with Marina to ask her lots of different questions, including... Why the hell do we need another Lance Armstrong documentary? We've had books, documentaries, films, magazine reports, all these things. Um, and you know what? She made a compelling case for it. Um, look, if you want to know my thoughts on Lance, I wrote a review this past week. I think that the film is a triumph in that it captures the full scope of the Armstrong story uh, from the time he was a kid, rough childhood, up through cycling, cancer, doping, downfall, what he's like now, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it it, it casts a, a wide net, and for the most part, it captures a lot of the stuff in there. I mean, if you've read stuff on villainews.com, if you followed, followed the story, you know that there's so many different chapters and twists and turns and little details here and there. Um, so in that respect, I think it is a success. Um, I, got, I found it to be a bit too much Lance Armstrong. Um, I know that the thrust of the film is like, what is Lance up to these days? How's he doing? What does he think about how everything went down? Um, As I wrote in my review, if you're not the kind of person who would want to hang out with Lance Armstrong for three hours, you might get some Lance fatigue in this film, which I did. 
Um, I also just, there's other elements of Lance Armstrong's story that I think are way more fascinating to put the microscope on than like, what does Lance think about X now? But that's my own personal opinion. Um, anyway, let's get to this interview with Marina. She's a pro. She has done um, celebrated documentaries on a, a whole score of fascinating people. Richard Pryor, Roman Polanski, Robin Williams. So making a film about Lance Armstrong is just the latest in a number of really, you know, interesting sometimes troubled people that she has uh, put the camera on. So we're going to talk to Marina. Second part of the show, <clears throat> we're talking more Everesting because Everesting continues to be hot, hot, hot. And I link up with Betsy Welch, who spent all last week on the Everesting beat, interviewing all these writers who have been Everesting, um, why they're doing it, what their motivations are, what their strategies are. Um, you know, Rebecca Rush just Everested through the middle of the night. Payson McElvin did it on single track. Katie Hall set a new record. Everesting is like the coolest thing to do. I tweeted this out. I, I don't just love when someone quotes their own tweet. Um, I'm the person that like sees someone do Everesting and there's a split second where I'm like, yeah, I could do that. Look at that. I could do that. And then I really think about it and I do the math and I see maybe some social pictures of them doing the Everesting thing. And I'm like, ah, there's no way. There's no way. Um, if you are an Everesting type person though, I wish you all the best of luck in riding up and down a hill again and again and again, because I think it is a very commendable activity, especially you're raising money for charity, but I think it's also kind of crazy. So that's back half of the show. Okay, enough with my intro. Let's get to Marina Zenovich to talk all about Lance. Uh, welcome back to the Velonews Podcast. Fred Dreyer here. I am really excited about this episode of the podcast. We have uh, Marina Zenovich, director and producer of the new documentary, Lance, the new 30 for 30 documentary that will air this Sunday night on ESPN. She is on the show. Uh, before we get to it again, we are broadcasting the Vela News podcast from our home these days. So apologies for any crying babies or phones that ring or bumps and thuds. We are doing the best that we can. Uh, Marina, thanks so much for uh, making time to come on the podcast. Sure. Thanks for having me. So my first question for you is about just the, the motivation behind the film itself. You know, we have the Alex Gibney documentary. We have the film Stop at Nothing the Hollywood feature, the program, the book Wheelman, Cycle of Lies, Lance Armstrong story has been told again and again, um, you know, either via documentary film or book. So I guess my opening question for you is why tell this story again, even though there's a lot of media out there around his story? There is a lot of media, but there hadn't been anything like this um, at all. And in a in a long time. I mean, those films were several years ago when um, he had his fall. So I too thought why, but uh, initially thought why, but then when I, when I delved into it and saw that um, Lance was ready to talk and um, give me access, I was, I was intrigued and curious when you looked at the um, other documentaries or read the source material about his stories 
what were the questions about Lance Armstrong that you set out to answer or the unexplored truths about him that you really wanted to get at? Just why, you know, why, why was he doping? Why was he lying? Uh, why was he bullying? I mean, I know the answers, but I, I, I didn't live it. So I, I sought answers from not just Lance, but, but everyone. And, you know, you have to understand the documentary form. It's not like people roll out the red carpet and say, we're going to tell you everything. I mean, a lot of times I wish I was writing a book because people don't necessarily want to go on camera and tell you things. But they will tell you as much as they're willing to. And then you, you know, get a bunch of different interviews and put them together and, and try to make sense of everything. I mean, I feel... That, you know, the film is called Lance in caps because Lance would never be lowercase. It's it's Lance. But the story is about all these other cyclists and what they went through and and a whole period of time that I personally, you know, cycling isn't my world, but I feel like I brought or we brought um, uh, kind of a, a scope to the whole story and Lance himself looking at it in hindsight. And uh, so I, I felt like there was really something there to explore if he was willing to go there. And I found that he was. Did it take prodding? Yes. Did he give me everything? No, but he gave me a lot. And I give him credit for that, for, for wanting to try. What do you really feel like that you got at um, in Lance that had been missing? Just an emotional truth. Um, you know, it's, I felt like I got some of that in moments, but it's really up to the viewer to feel whether I did or not. I mean, everyone has their own experience and about cycling and how much they know and how much they know about Lance. And, you know, it's everybody brings something different to the viewing experience. And I came in as an outsider and really tried to kind of, I come in with no preconceived ideas. I've read the books. I've, I've seen the films. Um, I'm trying to get to the bottom of it. And um, it's a lot of fun, but it's hard. And um, we put a lot of work into it. Piggybacking off of that, I'm really curious if there were areas around the Lance Armstrong story that, you know, has been told again and again and again, where you were really trying to break new ground on the reporting um, areas in the storytelling or reporting over the years that you felt like had come up short or just not really gotten at the heart of his story that you set out to really try and explore. Have you seen the film? Yeah. Yeah. Watched yeah. Part two I mean, last what, night. what do you think? <laughs> so. It's tough. I mean, I'm a cycling nerd. I came of age as a journalist during the last few years of Lance Armstrong where, you know, the biggest joke in all of cycling media was like, you know, there was everybody, everybody knew that he was doping and like he was had this power over the media and over the sport and over the everything. And so, I mean... You know, I, I feel like I feel like you made a lot of ground in where he is now and mm -hmm. um, his attitude towards looking back on the past. And like you said, I mean, you get these wonderful emotional reactions out of him that are really telling. And and I give you all the credit of the world. Um, the area which I've always wanted to see more ground broken and just more 
exploration done, and, and maybe it's just not ever going to happen, is really looking at the relationship between Lance and the powers of the UCI. Badger McQuaid, Heinver Bruggen, to try and figure out, like, what was the mechanism that allowed this guy to have get-out-of-jail-free card after get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah, I mean, I feel like what we got really spoke to how things were done. But, um, you know, people are only willing to go so far, whether it's Pat or Lance or Bill Stapleton. Um, Hein Verbruggen is dead. I mean, you know, I reached out to um, Tom Wiesel, you know, who didn't want to speak. I mean, there are a lot of people who didn't want to speak. I think I think there were people who want, you know, wanted to put this to bed and don't want to bring it up. And um, I, I had a lot of people like that who didn't want to talk. So, um, you know, I, I feel like Lance was more forthcoming than he was in, I can't even think of in what else. I feel like, I feel like he spoke about Hine in a way that I hadn't read before. I mean, forgive me if I am wrong and pointed out definitely, but um, you know, it's it's pretty clear what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we want all the gory details, but I, I don't know where who's going to spill those beans. Yep. No, it for sure. And I mean, you know, look, we're we're both reporters. You know that sometimes it's just that it's, it's going to come down to someone wanting to talk about it and spill the gory details. And if they're not, there's no paper trail. There's no documents. And then it's like there's a that stuff could fade into history, and it will be up to the people who were there to ever talk about it. I mean, I did think it was interesting that Pat McQuaid called Lance Armstrong as soon as he found out that Vodders had talked to the authorities. It was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Got that my- was interesting. And I have to say, um, Vodders and Pat McQuaid's recollections of the phone call were a little different, which is always fascinating. You know, everybody has their own truth. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone. And it's just, it's fascinating. And that's kind of like what I try to get into, how people see things different. I mean, that's not what this is about, but, you know, Lance's truth is his truth. Vodders remembers it a certain way. Pat McQuaid remembers it a certain way. Um, Boy, there's a lot there. Um, What do you think is the most telling piece of tape that you have about Lance and his personality and how he views the past? What's the section, the interview that you have that you really feel like um, shows how he feels? There are a couple... But uh, I think the moment, oh, God, the moment when he says, you know, I work for myself now. Um, I can't remember what he says before that. Forgive me. But it's um, it's a very there's a way that the camera never lies. And that's what I love about filming people, because I love the human face and seeing what comes over it. Um, You kind of can't lie. Like, if you're lying, there are other clues that you're lying. (laughs) That It's not that he was lying in that moment, but it's like, I love those moments where, you know, Lance is someone who had like a, a, a reality show about him on Discovery. How many years ago? He's very camera ready. Mm hmm and knows how to behave and he's very um charismatic and has great energy and is light on his feet and is extremely funny and is fun to spar with and so you know we went through all those motions which are all part of it 
but I love those moments when you just kind of catch the silence. Um, another moment for me, I mean, a lot of people, I, I'm not really a cynic in this story. You might be because you've experienced so much more than me, but a lot of people are like, oh, I don't just buy that he says I wouldn't change a thing. That's such bullshit. It's like, I feel that because of what happened or my experience of Lance because of what happened is that he wouldn't change a thing because what this, you know, what does he call it? A nuclear meltdown did for him was force him to kind of come to terms with himself. Mm -hmm. And I think as a result of doing that, he has a better relationship with his family, with his fiance, with his inner circle. And he's processing his relationship with himself because I think having such a major fall um, <laughs> when you just take on board what that must have been like and what it takes to come out of that, I, I feel that he's still processing and I feel that I really was um, as a documentarian fortunate enough to capture him at a particular moment in time. I, I think he wanted to be open. You know, the problem with the story is I can hear the haters in my head going, oh, come on, he fooled you. He's so charismatic and he tricked you. And, you know, it's like that's what makes it a good story because you have all these different points. But my truth of the experience is that I was wary but open to what he had to say. Why was I wary? Because of the books, because of the movies, because of, you know, the Betsy Andreus of the world who are still kind of um, not, um, haven't, uh, haven't come to terms with how this ended because, because they haven't, and that's their right. Um, so, but I tried and I, I, I think I succeeded. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fascinating character study. It's a fascinating story. To me, one of the most telling shots of the film is towards the end when you're asking him about Jan Ulrich and he gets emotional and he um, addresses what he perceives to be the double standard um, for writers of that era about how he was torn down and how the sport never welcomed him back. Yet writers like Eric Zabel, Rolf Aldog, Ivan Basso, some of those other writers um, continued on with their careers in the sport. Um, they're still looked at highly. Um, I mean, now that you've now that you've studied the sport and studied his actions, I mean, what do you think about his perspective on that, like the perceived double standard. What do you think about the way he still views um, the way he's treated versus other writers from that era? I think it's horrible, but I don't think it's just him. I think it's others. I think it's Floyd. I think it's Tyler Hamilton. And I, I think it's really unfair. Um, there's a real sense that these, these people who, who use performance enhancing drugs are tainted. Um, and I, I think it's unfair. Um, you know, it was really my hope when this film came out to, of course, we were hoping to screen it across the country and it was going to be in theaters. And um, I was hoping that we would have some sort of round table. Maybe we still can on Zoom. <laughs> but to have people, uh, USA Cycling, USADA cyclists talk about this 
and um, have some sort of, you know, come to Jesus moment understanding. There seems to, seems to be a real disconnect between the, the cyclists and the powers that be about um, who who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. Um, so I'm not just talking about Lance. I mean, Lance is, a, is different, but I feel that other writers who, who, who took performance enhancing drugs, um, are, are suffering as well and trying to tell their story. And it's just, it's, it's just sad. I mean, Tyler Hamilton says something great in the film. Like I was hoping that we wouldn't have to tell it. I was hoping that we wouldn't have to tell this truth in our generation, like the people before us were hoping that they wouldn't have to tell it, you know, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like they did. And what was astounding to me as an outsider was to interview all these people and say, like, how did people not think that this would this story would come out? This this the fact that they were that they were taking performance enhancing drugs. How could this not come out? I mean, that's one level. Then you have Lance's level of, you know, what he did as well. But um, that's why Floyd is such a fascinating part of the story, um, because he just couldn't keep it in anymore because of how he was treated. And it's true. And I look at the spot that those three have, at least in the cycling space now. And look, Floyd is, you know, making a comeback as a business owner and his brand is slowly being accepted and incorporated by cyclists and the cycling community. Tyler is a coach. He's still um, a bit more of, um, you know, complicated character. And Lance is, you know, I mean, he's cycling's version of Donald Trump. Like people either love him or they hate him. And no, nothing anyone is going to say, no documentaries, no book is really going to convince I feel like at this point, anyone to sort of change sides. But I felt like that was a quality that's that's found in your documentary is that I do feel like people on either side of the Lance divide can watch it and and get something out of it and not, you know, either throw the remote at the TV or say, oh, this is trying to convince me of some of something else. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the whole point is to kind of have the audience um, try to view this in a different light and see how they feel. I mean, my pushback to Lance on the why are, you know, Eric Zabel and Rolf Aldug and Ivan Basso still accepted back into the sport. It's like, well, yeah, but they didn't act the way you acted when you were cornered. Right. I mean, for me, that story um, was uh, surprising because it was a moment that I was going to ask Lance about um, – uh, it was like I was debating when to bring up cancer and how I was going to talk to him about it and how much time he was going to give me. And when you have someone talking about something like that, you don't know, you know, you, you need people to talk about something they've talked about a zillion times in a fresh and emotional way. And so that the moment that I was going to ask him about that um, in that interview, he told me I had 10 minutes left. Mm. And I was like, oh, God, I, well, I can't I was going to ask you about cancer and I can't. I can't talk about cancer in 10 minutes. So, you know, we, we had filmed him going to Ragbri and we were on the plane going there and he started talking to me about Jan Ulrich. And um, basically I knew that he, he had gone to Germany to see him. So I just pulled that, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do and uh, or w- what I was going to ask him about because every moment was so precious and so I just said, why did you go to Germany to interview, you know, sorry, why did you go to Germany to, to see Jan? And I had no idea I was going to get that response. 
And um, I have to say, for me, it was not more about how Lance was the same as those people. To me, it was about Pantani being dead Mm -hmm. and Ulrich being shunned and, you know, whatever Lance's reality is of how he views himself in that. It was more kind of like what the sport could do to people. Um, So it was a very emotional moment. And, um, you know, it was like, wow. Um, And I think he used these, these sessions to kind of vent and, you know, try to explain things. And, you know, um, it was interesting to see kind of with each interview, how he went deeper. And um, it was often kind of getting him out of his environment and not having a lot of people around. We did like an amazing interview. He happened to be in Arizona training for something. And we interviewed him twice. And got him like in someone's back house and there was no one there. And it was like one of the best interviews, um, you know, to really kind of put him in the hot seat and get him to open up. Um, 20 years from now, what do you think Lance Armstrong's place in um, as, as a figure and then also in cycling history looks like? Oh, gosh. You tell me. I don't know. I mean, he's young. He has he's what 48 um i mean as an outsider it it was quite interesting and i think this is explained in alex gibney's movie how you know he had those well not part of it was he had these titles taken away but the people below him were also doping so that in itself is very interesting to me so it is kind of like who won those tours um i think he'll always be a compelling figure he'll always be um an iconic figure, but he'll be as divisive as he is now. I think, I don't know. I mean, it's like, you know, people really feel strongly about him. And I think, um, I guess that will continue. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, (laughs) we'll find out. Right. Well, Marina, I give you a ton of credit. You, um, you know, you, you plowed over ground that had been plowed over many, many times before. And you did come up with, um, new and compelling um, stuff. And yeah, I mean, we've gotten a lot of uh, tweets and social media responses. Why do we need another Lance film? God, this guy again. I'm not going to watch this. I'm sick of this. Blah, 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 blah. And as someone who's followed the sport and read all the books and watched all the films and followed it, you know, I, I started off with that sentiment too. Uh, but I commend you for making a film that um, was very entertaining and insightful for me, one of the cynical you know, people <laughs> has read everything and seen everything and, and studied this thing. Um, I, I found it very insightful and very well done. Thank you. I have to say it's fascinating looking at the tweets. Um, it's a whole different world than when you're traveling with Lance. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. I mean, it, it's night and day. I mean, the guy, everybody wants to shake his hand. Everybody wants to talk to him. It's like it's it's fascinating to me. Um, but this is the world we live in and you know great talking to you thanks for having me yeah you too marina take care thanks again
Much like uh, Jitterbug Marathons, Rollerblades, Pogs, uh, and Joe Exotic, there is a new fad sweeping the nation, and that fad is called Everesting. Last week, we talked to Keegan Swenson about his recent Everesting um, record-breaking attempt. Keegan is not alone. In the last few weeks, we've seen a number of high-profile cyclists uh, take on this challenge, from Phil Guyman to Rebecca Rush, Payson McElvin, Casey Armstrong. A bunch of athletes are riding the elevation of Everest. And last week, I put our very own Betsy Welch on the Everesting beat to try and get to the bottom of uh, why the cycling world has all of a sudden become crazy with riding great elevations. Betsy, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, Fred, no problem. I just got back from my Everest attempt. So how, how'd it go? <laughs> oh, you know, it's been funny. I, I've had like, I kind of had FOMO at the beginning, like, oh, I should be doing this. And then I was adamantly opposed to it. And now I'm sort of back on the, you know, it's, it's pretty freaking cool. Um, and I wonder if I could. And I think everyone I talked to, that was tip of the tongue. I wonder if I can. I think that's, I definitely have an element of it too, where, you know, you look at the Strava files of what these people have done and you look at the photos and of them doing it on um, Instagram and social media. You know, I followed Ruth Winder and her attempt here in Boulder last week. And there was definitely a part of me that was like, man, I could do that. I love to climb. I love to ride Flagstaff. Yeah. It's so cool. But then I start to do the math and it's like, you know, I remember some of the hardest mountain rides that I've done where the accumulated elevation gain was like 14,000 feet. You know, I think once I got close to 15,000 feet when I was but a younger man in my 20s and riding in Italy and riding up some of these alpine passes and just remembering how utterly smoked I was at the end of that. And then thinking you have to double that elevation gain. And that's where I start to get the willies. Yeah. And for me personally, the elevation, I mean, yeah, it's terrifying, but it's also the fact that you have to do this on one strip of, of road or trail. You don't get to like create some kick-ass route that, um, you know, you get to go ride around in the mountains and do 29,000 feet. You have to repeat the same thing. And some of the folks that we've talked to, um, the amount of times they have climbed the same climb over and over to achieve this is is mind-blowing. So why now? Um, in the last two weeks, we've just seen a number of riders start doing this. You've talked to a lot of them. Why are they doing this now? Well, uh, for some riders, it's definitely been a bit of like, you know, I love to train. And my races that I was training for are either not happening or in question. And I, I need to, I need to put, you know, workouts on the calendar every day. Um, I think there was a bit of, um, sort of momentum too. once it started to become a thing, other people who had like considered it in the back of their mind, like, Oh, I might Everest one day. Um, there was sort of like more of a collective, um, incentive to do it. And then of course, Rebecca Rush, um, put on an actual, um, event called Giddy Up for Good, which was a climbing challenge, not, not just an Everest challenge, but had a couple other elevations to climb, but that she managed to rally a very impressive roster of people who, um, attempted the Everest. So, you know, it's, I guess it's a perfect storm. People have time on their hands. They have the desire to be training and to have a goal. Um, and then sort of, um, I guess, solidarity of 
of everyone doing it. Yeah, the most recent record we've seen, Katie Hall, who did the same climb, uh, Bonnie Dune Road outside of Santa Cruz, California, which I have been on that road so many times. It's a gorgeous climb with great uh, views of the ocean. You climb up into the redwoods. She climbed that 29 times for, uh, she broke the record, for set the record for women. 10 hours, one minute, 42 seconds. It's a great photo of her just looking fresh as a, as a daisy after finishing. Where I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, if I took a photo after doing that, I'd like be just covered in sweat and grossness and you know probably be unable to smile. Um, what can you say about Rebecca and then uh, Payson's attempts? Because it sounds like they took the traditional format and added a twist to it. Yes, they did. So Payson um, decided to do it on single track, which, oof, uh, ouch, yeah, yeah. And he did finish. Um, confirmed, he did finish. I think in under just under sixteen hours, maybe. Which, when we spoke um, a week before his attempt, that was his sort of goal. So that is so impressive. I think he did it on a piece of single track that was about four miles long and 1500 feet of ascent. Um, and, you know, again, it's sort of like I talked to Lael Wilcox, the ultra endurance cyclist, and she, she said something like, you know, you do this crazy thing that's just crazy in itself, but then it's like, well, how can I make it my own? You know? So her thought was maybe I'll, maybe I'll double it, <laughs> but Payson to make it his own. Um, he, he thought he'd do it on single track and he did, he, he thought he'd be the first, but I think there is someone else out there who may have done it on single track too. Doesn't matter. Still a totally amazing feat. Um, Rebecca Rush did hers on, I think, dirt, um, not single track, but a dirt climb that's actually part of her private Idaho event. Um, and she rode through the night. I guess temps were dipping into the 30s. Um, other people, mountain bikers doing it on paved road. Um, and, and, you know, not just pros too, Fred, like there are so many people in our local community here who I, I keep hearing about, oh yeah, that guy Everest did Lick Skillet, which is like this brutally steep dirt, dirt climb we have here. Or, or, oh, did you hear about the person that Everest did Chapman, which is like a not very steep dirt climb, which who knows how many times you'd have to do that. So people aren't just Everesting. They're like putting these crazy spins on it. That's making it, in my opinion, even more challenging. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, for every top pro that we've gotten wind of doing this Everesting thing, we've gotten probably like three or four emails of just, you know, passionate cyclists out there. John Q. Public on a bike who has been who's felt inspired to go and do this. And, and hey, kudos to all of you. Um, you're all insane. And I wish you the best of luck <laughs> in your Everesting attempt. What I think has also been interesting, and I talked a bit to Keegan about this last week, is that there is some skill and science involved in the preparation and planning, and a lot of that revolves around choosing the right climb. You know, Keegan talked about, well, choosing a climb that suited his strengths as a rider. You know, he is um, a mountain biker, so he's used to steep climbs, so he chose a climb that had enough elevation gain and a steep enough grade where he felt like he was just going to be able to zip up it and zip down. Um, what have you gotten out of the, your sources you've talked to about the, the skill and science in choosing a right climb? Yeah, similar. Um, you want something that's um, steep, but not so steep you're just going to tip over. Um, the other thing is you want to be able to sustain, I guess, like a pretty consistent, um, I don't know, zone two type effort when you're going up. Um, so 
the the magic number it seemed like was like around 10, 11 percent, um, which is which is legitimately steep. Um, but the other thing that that there is to factor in is like, is it a straight road? Is it a curvy road? Um, in Payson's case, is it single track that has some natural undulation in it? Because the key is to get down really fast and turn around and start coming up again. So Phil Guyman, like I think he did like something like 62 laps because his, while steep, um, I think 11% was only 500 feet high. So he had to just like come up and then just bomb down. I think his descents took 50 seconds is what he told me. Um, and when Keegan was choosing his route, he initially had was going to do a, a pretty long climb. Um, but then when, when he found out about Phil's record, he was like, Ooh, um, I, I'd like to beat that record. So he tweaked his route to include, um, a road that didn't have any switchbacks so that he could get down faster. So it seems like the getting down fast, um, is a pretty crucial piece of the formula. Yeah. And I was thinking about that as I was on Instagram following along, uh, with Ruth Winder, who was doing hers on Flagstaff, which is our big climb here. One of our big climbs here in Boulder and Flagstaff is a beautiful climb. It is a challenging climb, a lot of switchbacks, a lot of twists yeah. and turns. And I kept thinking about that in terms of, you know, yeah, okay. That's going to slow you down, but also just like, yeah, that's a lot of time on, you know, if you're having to break, if there's cars, that's just more stress. I feel like going on the body, whereas it's yeah. like, if it's just straight up and straight down, all of your effort is going into the pedals and then into your fingers, squeezing those brakes, you know, towards the end of your descent and you can flip around and do it again. Whereas coming down Flagstaff, you know, you're twisting and turning, you're hitting the brakes, you're easing off the brakes, you're switching your body around through these switchbacks. And I just thought, oh man, that's got to be uncomfortable. And sure enough, um, Ruth Winder, by the end of her um, of her Everestig, I was following along, like I said, Instagram, but she was like, oh man, my like my emotions and my sort of, you know, my everything is all over the place right now. Hey, Ruth Winder, kudos to you for doing it. That looked yeah. really hard. Yours was the one that made me be like, oh my God, this looks so hard. This looks impossible. I'm really happy that A, she did it, B, completed it, and C, documented it on social media because you could see like in real time as like, you know, the pain the pain meter was going up and like the enthusiasm meter was kind of going down and the, Oh my God, am I going to finish this or am I going to quit meter was just like waving back and forth. Like, I think I'm going to quit. No, I'm going to keep going. Ah, this, this feels really awful. Um, so yeah. Well, yeah. I mean like Ruth and a lot of these people, um, I mean, she, I think that that was her longest ride ever by like six hours. So these people are spending time in the saddle that they do not, um, enjoy. <laughs> you know, it's not like Ruth and, and Keegan um, go out on like 12 hour epics. Like um, I think Keegan said he's, he does a fair number of five hour rides, but six hours longest ride. Um, you know, Payson to Ruth said four hours, no more, no thank you. So it's not like, it's not just the vert, it's the time in the saddle too, that for a lot of these riders is not normal. And it sounds like there's a website then where you will record your challenge or you record your time and it tells you whether or not, you know, where you, where you rank in relation to the all-time grades for having completed. So it's still a very unofficial challenge, kind of based on the honor system. I mean, the people who are really going for the record, you know, they have watches and they have people following them. So it's very official. So I don't think we have to worry anytime about, um, you know, some type of Everesting cheating scandal. 
um, anytime <laughs> soon. But I, I have been interested as someone who follows the sport just to see how much attention this has generated very quickly. And, and again, I agree with you. It's sort of like, here we are week 10, 12, 15. What, are, what week are we? Wait, week 100 of the uh, coronavirus shutdown. And this is when things start to get a little freaky and a little weird. People start coming up with some bold ideas. Um, what's Here's a question for you, uh, Betsy. Like, What is the Everesting for the every person, the people like you and me out there? Or maybe the people like me, not like you. You do dirty kinza and you're fine. Like, What, what should my Everesting be? Oh, Fred. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean. Should I pick a different mountain, you know? Well, we are in we are in Colorado. Yeah. We do have, you know, a handful of, of peaks over 14,000 feet. I, I think that's still a, a stout effort. Can you think you can do a 14er? Right now, I would still have to build up to it, but I think it's within my grasp. 14ering. Maybe that will be the, the Fred Dreyer version or the, the every person version. Not the, I don't want to claim it as my own. That's the, like the, the more manageable um everesting is the 14 ring or like maybe like the denali ing or um exclusive <laughs> bottle how about a ma- one of those mountains that has like a really hard to pronounce name popocatepetl outside of mexico city i'm gonna popocatepetl yeah. this week you know it's the craze i mean you could pick you could pick the highest peak in each state which i don't know i'm sure there's some states where it's just a couple hundred feet um, i think you could probably handle that i'm gonna choose the highway 23 overpass um, right. <laughs> well, anyway, it's Everesting. Again, it is the craze sweeping the nation. If you are doing your own Everesting challenge, good luck to you. Kudos to you. You're amazing. <laughs> go raise some money. Go have fun. Go spend all time on your bike. You know, feel free to let us know. Web letters at bellnews.com. I can't guarantee we're going to write about it. But, um, you know, good on you, person, for riding your bike great distances. Uh, Betsy Welch, thanks so much for coming on the podcast to talk about Everesting. We are going to have a great show coming up for you next week. I believe we will have all watched the Lance documentary, Lance, by then, and we're going to share our thoughts on the film. So, for Betsy Welch, this is Fred Dreyer. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.